I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and I want to speak to you for a few moments about what a difference, the difference that Christ makes. Back in the early days of contemporary Christian music, uh, B.J. Thomas came to faith in Christ and recorded a song called What a Difference You've Made in My Life. It was one of my favorite songs in those years. I had loved the music of B.J. Thomas when uh, he was a secular artist and did a lot of really cool songs. And, and, but then when he started to record some of these songs, it just meant even more to me to hear what God had done in his life. These are the words of this very simple song, but I think you might can identify. What a difference you've made in my life. What a difference you've made in my life. You're my sunshine day and night. Oh, what a difference you've made in my life. What a change you have made in my heart. What a change you have made in my heart. You've replaced all the broken parts. What a change you have made in my heart. Love to me was just a word in a song that had been way overused. But now I join in the singing. Because you've shown me love's true meaning. That's why I want to spread the news. What a difference you've made in my life. What a difference you've made in my life. You're my sunshine day and night. What a difference you've made in my life. Christ made a difference in me. I hope he made a difference in you. I hope that regardless of the circumstances, just like the song that the choir just did, that, that you realize he's, he's your only sunshine day and night. He's the only one that can bring hope and joy to your heart. This world will let you down. Life will hurt you. But he's the one that can change your life. Not religion, not joining a church, not being a Baptist, <clears throat> but a relationship with Christ that is personal. I want us to look at just three verses this morning. Very familiar verses in the Gospel of John, the fourth of the Gospels. The longest, uh, John writes about the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and then he goes right into this story of evangelism and of sharing the Gospel, John 1 and verse 40. One of the two who heard John, that's John the Baptist, speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, I want you to notice there are two little phrases here that we don't need to miss. He found first. He found first. The first person he went to was his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means the Christ. He found him first, verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Part of why we are here on this planet is to bring people to Jesus, to introduce them to Jesus. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The difference one can make 
By the way, Andrew's name means manly. Manly. He's a man's man. This, this idea that, that sharing the gospel is only for women and young people is a false idea. That we are to share the faith of Christ. He was rugged. He was a fisherman. He would have had to have been a strong man, a, a consistent man, a, a hard-working man. And we don't know a lot about Andrew, but we know this. He was bold. He cared about his family knowing about Jesus, and he cared about others knowing about Jesus. He heard such incredible news that it changed the trajectory of his life, and he was never the same. He left fishing and became one of the apostles, one of the followers of Jesus. Now, in the Gospels, Peter gets a lot of ink. I mean, there's a lot about Simon Peter in all the Gospels. And Andrew doesn't get a lot of ink. I mean, you could write the story of Andrew in the foreword of the Gospels, and it'd just be a few sentences. But if it hadn't been for Andrew, would Simon Peter have met Jesus? If he hadn't gone and told his one brother, as far as we know, it's the only brother he had, if he hadn't told his one, what would have been different? You see, the difference that Christ made in Simon Peter's life was because his brother, one man, one person, told one other person who became a disciple, who became the recognized leader of the disciples when Jesus was on earth and then when Jesus left and in the book of Acts. The late Homer Lindsay, who pastored for years at First Baptist Church of Jacksonville, Florida, said that Andrew had a title, it was inviter. That every time you see Andrew in the Bible, he is inviting someone to meet Jesus. He's talking to somebody about Jesus. Andrew introduced people to Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we made a trip uh, to East Georgia to visit the home of my birth mom and to visit her grave and took some roses and put on the grave and spent about 45 minutes there and talked a little bit, reflected a lot, prayed together as a family. And while we were there, Haley made this statement that still overwhelms me. She just said, out of the blue, how many people will be in the kingdom because she gave birth to you? I don't know what that number is. I wish it were more than whatever the number is. But how many people will be in the kingdom because you have life in Christ. How many people will be in heaven because you and I take seriously the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Not just take seriously coming to church, but take seriously sharing Jesus. How many people 
will be in the kingdom because we had life and then we got abundant life through Jesus Christ. I don't have a clue what it is with me and I don't know what it is with you. And the truth of the matter is you can't count it all because you don't know who you've talked to that has talked to somebody else that has talked to somebody else. Every one of us, by the way, every one of us are the result of Paul and Barnabas going on a missionary journey and taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Our faith dates all the way back to the New Testament because if the gospel had just stayed with the Jews and in Jerusalem, we would have never heard. And we would be lost. So Paul told somebody who told somebody who told somebody, and through the years and through the centuries and through the millennia, it got to us because somebody did what they were supposed to do. What if that somebody had been silent? What if that somebody had said, I don't want to wear a John 3.16 bracelet. Somebody might ask me a question. What if that somebody had said, I don't want to pray for lost people because I might get convicted that I need to do something. What if that somebody had said, I just want to study the Bible, but I don't want to talk to anybody about what God's teaching me in the Bible. Let's use a little sanctified imagination. If Andrew had never been born, if Andrew had never been born, the New Testament might be a totally different book. Peter may have never been saved. Someone else would have been at Caesarea Philippi saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Someone else would have preached the first sermon at Pentecost. Someone else would have given the gospel to Mark so that he could write it down. Someone else would have written, or we wouldn't even have the book of 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Andrew wasn't famous, but he led somebody to Christ who became famous. Andrew would be quickly forgotten if we started naming the disciples, but we know his brother. Can I tell you something? There are members of this church who will never be famous, who have done great things for God. Because... You've shared Christ with your children, with your grandchildren, with your neighbors, with your work associates, with your friends, with your schoolmates, and they have heard the gospel, and you may never be famous. They may never interview you. They may never write a book about you, but in the eyes of God, you get the thumbs up because you did what you were supposed to to do. There are names we will never know that are responsible for people that we do know because they were faithful to share the gospel. The difference one conversation makes. As uh, far as we know, uh, Andrew didn't teach a Bible study class. He didn't start a church. He was a layman who told his brother he saw the value of one. And when you see Andrew in the Bible, you see him every time he's sharing Christ. He brought Peter, just one. Went and got his brother. He brought him. 
Just one. He brought the boy with the loaves and fish. Just one. Just imagine. And, you know, everybody, you know, there's no way we can feed these 5,000 people plus women and children. I mean, let's just send them home. Andrew found the one boy that hadn't eaten his lunch yet, which was a miracle in and of itself, and brought him to Jesus. And Jesus took that boy's lunch and fed thousands. He brought the boy. He brought Jewish people to Jesus. But the trigger point in Andrew's life, besides bringing his brother, is when he brought the Greeks who were seeking Jesus in John 12. And when Andrew brought the Greeks, that was the trigger to Jesus in John 12, that his time had come and that the cross was near and that he was about to give his life. Everything triggered on Jesus and those Greeks, those Gentiles. And Andrew is the one that brought them. So who's your one? Who's in your traffic pattern? Who do you know that if they came to Christ, other people would come to Christ? Who, who's your neighbor, your schoolmate, your friend, your family member, your relative? Who's the one that God has laid on your heart that you cannot get off your mind? Just think about it. Andrew brought Peter, and Peter preached to thousands on the day of Pentecost. The fruit of Peter's ministry was because of the faithfulness of Andrew's witness. I want to say that again because you need to get it. The fruit of Peter's ministry was because of the faithfulness of Andrew's witness. Who's your one? Who's the person on your campus that if they came to Christ, dozens of other people would start paying attention? Who's the person in your workplace that if they came to Christ, it would change your workplace? Who's the person in your neighborhood that if they came to Christ, it would change your neighborhood? Who's the person that every Sunday is getting up and taking his boat to go fishing and we have been called to be fishers of men and we never go and try to get him in the boat with Jesus? Who's the one? There's a marker in Boston when we did Refresh in Boston a few years ago. Uh, we went to this street corner, and there's a marker in Boston that shows the place where D.O. Moody uh, prayed to receive Christ. I think we've got a picture of it. Yeah, there it is. D.O. Moody, Christian evangelist, friend of man, founder of Northfield Schools, was converted to God in a shoe store on this site, April 21st, 1855. Now, we hear a lot about Chicago. Nobody talks much about that. But for decades, the city of Chicago was transformed because a layman, a Sunday school teacher, led D.O. Moody to Christ. It's one of the most famous stories about a person sharing their faith in Christ. Edward Kimball was the name of the Sunday school teacher's name, and uh, was his name, and he went to this shoe store that D.O. Moody worked in as an 18-year-old and talked to him in the stock room about his faith in Christ and about needing 
to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Historians tell us that Kimball was timid and soft-spoken, and when he went to the shoe store, listen, because some of you are letting the devil intimidate you out of the joy of leading someone to Christ. And he's playing on your fear, and he's intimidating you. I want you to listen, because probably a million people came to faith in Christ under the preaching of D.L. Moody because a timid, introverted Sunday school teacher went to talk to him. One layman, timid and soft-spoken, wasn't even sure when he got to the door of the shoe store if he was going to go in. But he went in. Moody was crude, illiterate, and lost he knew nothing about the Bible, but someone had invited him to come to Kimball's Sunday school class. Which is, by the way, a word to all of us who are in Bible study classes. If our group is closed and if we are not inviting the lost and unchurched to come to Bible study, who knows who we're missing? Who are we missing? They are more likely to come to a faith in Christ in a smaller group than they are in a big room like this. In fact, the whole concept of Sunday school was started as an evangelistic tool of the church. It was not started so that we could have coffee and talk among ourselves. It was started so that we could invite people to come learn the Bible. Moody knew nothing about the Bible. Nothing about it. Crude, illiterate. But he had been invited. Here's what Kimball said. I decided to speak to Moody about Christ and about his soul. I started downtown to Holton's shoe store. When I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to go during business hours. And I thought maybe my mission might embarrass the boy that when I went away, the other clerks might ask who I was and when they learned, might taunt Moody and ask if I was trying to make a good boy out of him. This is how Kimball describes his witness. Some of us, listen, some of us are saying, I don't know the right method. I don't know if I could even use John 3.16 and share my faith. I, I don't know how to share my testimony. I, I, I've not been through EE. I've not been through CT. I don't even know if I could share a track with somebody. I, I don't know how to share the Romans road with anybody. Listen to Kimball. Kimball said, I spoke to him. Gosh, I hope you're getting this. I hope you're not on spring break right now. Man, I hope you're getting this. Kimball said, I spoke to him with limping words and said, I never could remember what I said. I said something about Christ and his love, and that was all. And I made a weak appeal, and D.L. Moody got saved. Limping words, a weak appeal. And Moody came to Christ. L listen, this is Kimball, okay? Watch this. I can truly say, and in saying it, I magnify the infinite grace of God as bestowed on him. 
that I have seen few persons whose minds were spiritually darker than his. When he came into my Sunday school class, and I think that the committee of the Mount Vernon Church seldom met an applicant for membership more unlikely ever to become a Christian of clear and decided views of the gospel truth, still less to fill any extended sphere of public usefulness. I just let that stay there for a while. In the eyes of the world, D.L. Moody didn't count for anything. Crude, illiterate, uneducated shoe salesman trying to make a buck. But in the eyes of God, he was the greatest evangelist of the 1800s. Although he never preached in it, there's a church named after him in Chicago. It's called Moody Church. But he started churches. Moody is attributed with the impact and success and the launch of the YMCA. He and his wife, when nobody else was doing it, trained women for evangelistic outreach. Moody focused on children. Moody believed that the next generation was the most important to reach. He traveled extensively. The most brilliant preacher of the time was Charles Spurgeon in England, and Spurgeon had Moody preach in his pulpit. I've stood outside of Charlotte Chapel in Edinburgh, which wouldn't hold 500 people if everybody was sitting elbow to elbow, and Moody went there on multiple occasions to share the gospel, and every year that Moody went to Charlotte Chapel, they baptized a thousand people in that year in Edinburgh. He preached to at least a million people in his lifetime. He established a Bible conference center. He crossed denominational and theological lines, all because, all because limping words and a weak appeal of one Sunday school teacher changed the course of millions of lives. So teachers, let me ask you, who's your one? Who's your one? Can you, with limping words today, share your testimony? in your class and ask those that sit in your class if they really know Jesus or if they just know the name of Sherwood. If you read the impact of Moody's life, other evangelists came along generation after generation until Mordecai Ham and Mordecai Ham was preaching when Billy Graham got saved. All because of one limping word, weak appeal Sunday school teacher. Every person that's been saved through the ministry of the Billy Graham Association is because in 1855 
a Sunday school teacher told an 18-year-old boy he needed Jesus and he was saved and it changed his life and we're still seeing the effects of it. We're still seeing the effects of it. More people have been saved in the last year through the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association than were saved in any year when Billy was alive. Because his sermons from the 50s in black and white are being shown on television and on the internet around the world and people are praying to receive Christ, hearing the gospel preached from a man who's dead. And yet he lives. Who's your one? Vance Havner said, too many Christians are stuffing themselves with gospel blessings while millions have never had a taste. Let's read that aloud together, all right? Too many Christians are stuffing themselves with gospel blessings while millions have never had a taste. Let's talk about the difference one invitation can make. He found his brother. He said, we found the Messiah, and he brought him to Jesus. Now, here's a statistic that you and I need to get our heads around. This is really important. 96% of people who will fill the empty seats in this room, 96% of people who will fill these empty seats will come because someone invites them, comes with them, picks them up, or meets them here. You say, wow, you know, we, we don't use the mezzanines in the balcony. Well, we went to two services for a reason. Because we were at pretty much what everybody would say is capacity, 80%, which means you're searching for seats. And so we went to two. It was imperative that we change our schedule. It's imperative that we change our thinking. But guess what? It means that we have room for almost 2,000 more people. Amen. Now, let's remember something. This is not about you. This is not about me. It's about them, and it's about him. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about them, and it's about him. It's not about my preferences. It's not about my likes and dislikes. It's about the fact that 96% of these seats that are empty in this room right now and in the next service, 96% of them are going to be filled if we invite people, bring people, meet people to be here. That's staggering. It's about us telling lost people that Jesus loves them. I mean, we've got the room, we've got the parking spaces. I mean, we've got carts that can pick people up. If you parked at the far end by the Crisis Pregnancy Center and or down by the print shop all the way a block and a half away. We got a cart that can bring you right here. 
Nobody will ever have to say, it's too far to walk from my car to the front door. We'll drop you off at the front door. We'll drop your friends off at the front door. We'll take you back. We have people that volunteer to do that. But you see, if they're not here, they'll never know. If they're not here, they'll never know the love, the unity, the warmth, the worship that is Sherwood. When we exemplify Christ in what we do. They'll never see it, they'll never know it. Everybody in this town's got an opinion about Sherwood. Most of them don't know about Jesus. We need to get them beyond what they think about us and get them beyond to what they need to think about Jesus. It's imperative. By the way, here's another statistic that will frighten you. Statistics say that 98% of church members, this is every denomination across America, 98% of church members have never invited an unchurched or unsaved person to come to church. 98% have never invited an unchurched or an unsaved person. Not even said, hey, could I invite you to come to Sherwood? I mean, don't, don't even get that out of their mouths. Now, let me ask you something. Where do you think your lost friends are going when they die? Only 20% of us will invite another Christian. Only 20, so if you take this room, only 20% of us, if we are statistically like every other church, will even say to a new person in town, yeah, oh, I just moved here. Really? Yeah, you know, I came here, blah, blah, blah. Only, and you find out they're a Christian, only 20% of us would ever follow up and say, hey, would you like to join me at Sherwood? You know what we do? We let the devil say, well, they're Episcopalian. Or they're Catholic or they're Methodist. That's a label, folks. That's just a label. Hey, there are going to be a lot of people with a lot of labels that are going to be in hell one day. And somebody will tell you that they're, that they're some kind of church member but may not know Christ. So let me ask you a couple of questions. How did we miss the point of the Great Commission? How did we miss the point of the Great Commission? Hey, is there a translation out there that doesn't include it? And evangelicals in America are reading it? I mean, there are people in China that will be arrested today for sharing the gospel and yet the gospel has never arrested our attention enough to share it with somebody else. When did we think this was multiple choice? Well, I teach Sunday school, so I don't, I'm a deacon, so I don't, I'm a staff member, so I don't have to, I'm a pastor, so I don't have to, I, I serve in the kitchen, so I don't have to, I do this, so I don't have to. When did we think this was multiple choice? And why do we think our personality, education, knowledge of methods has anything to do with it? The limping appeal of a weak, introverted Sunday school teacher. You know, when I read the New Testament, when I read the epistles, 
you, you, never, you never find, <laughs> this is fascinating to me. I don't know if, you, you may just go, well, you, you need to get a life, preacher. But this is fascinating to me. Not one book in the New Testament does any of the writers say, here's the program, here's the method. Not one time do they have to urge people to share the gospel. Not one time do they have to plan a program to share the gospel. It's just what the church did. And so 3,000 are saved and 5,000 are saved and and 6,000 are saved. And the Lord is adding to the number day by day those who are being saved. Not one time did they say, okay, we've got an evangelistic emphasis for a few weeks and then we're going to get back to navel-gazing. It was the norm. They just did it. It was automatic, contagious, spontaneous. Robert Coleman, who wrote a great book, it's in the source, called The Master Plan of Evangelism, said, when our hearts are filled with Christ's presence, evangelism is as inevitable as it is contagious. When our hearts are filled with Christ's presence, then evangelism is as inevitable as it is contagious. Let me ask you, who do you know that is still alive that you need to share the gospel with? Until you don't know and it's too late to find out. Would you pray with me?